0: Everybody, to another edition of The Endgame. Joining me, as always, is my partner in crime, the great Bill fleckers Hi, mate. Hello, mate. How are you today? I am splendid. I am splendid. I'm basking in Carolina sunshine, which is a wonderful thing to be doing. Good for you. Uh, now, we have another fantastic guest joining us shortly, Milton Berg, who I first met about three years ago. Uh, and, and Milton was kind of this figure that i'd kind of heard of and a, a, you know he was kind of a mystical figure so in the way i understood him and i ended up having a chance to sit and chat with him um when i was at real vision and, and just had this incredibly fascinating conversation and he's 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 a deeply fascinating man who's fascinated me ever since frankly well um
1: i was so impressed by that conversation that i immediately decided to sign up and take his service and uh I'm really glad that I did. And uh, as we get into the interview, people will understand why.
0: Yeah, yeah. Mil- Milton's, uh, he's had a fascinating journey, which I'm hoping he'll talk us about from from one way of looking at markets to another. Um, and, you know, to me, he's the ultimate technical analyst because he, he will change sides the same day if, if the signals tell him to. You know, he's worked out some incredible signals over the years. So, you know, getting an aspect on the end game, from a technical perspective, it's something we haven't had a chance to do yet. So I'm really excited to um, to jump in and cover this with Milton. So what do you say, Bill? Why don't we uh, stop faffing around you and me and, and get the star of the show on and, and talk to Milton? I agree. Let's do it. All right. Well, Milton, welcome to the Endgame. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We're both uh, we're both thrilled that you could do this.
2: I'm thrilled to be here, Grant, and
0: Bill, so thank you. It's You and I haven't seen each other. You were the final interview I did during my days at Real Vision. So I haven't seen oh, you... Well. As- since then, well, you,
2: you you made me famous. I appreciate it.
0: Well, I don't know about making you famous. That was a great. That
2: was a great interview. Actually, it was a great interview. It was, it was the first time I was able to really discuss the types of indicators I look at and my attitude towards the market. Was, well,
1: uh, just to comment on that, um, I was so impressed with that interview that I immediately signed up for your service. So,
2: uh, I, I appreciate I, that. Thank you.
1: Well, you know what? Uh, and I'm really glad I did. We can talk about that at some point because there's a couple of questions I'd like to ask you, but I, I think that'd be better later after we kind of dive into some you of the can big ask me
2: picture stuff. You know, it's okay. Nothing's a secret here.
0: Okay. <laughs> so Milton, look, Bill and I have kind of started this journey with with no real destination in mind in terms of the end game. We just wanted to have a series of conversations with people and just try and better inform our own opinions. And so really uh, what, what I'd love to start with, if we can, is kind of your assessment of of where we are right now, of what the world looks like to you in a, in a very broad sense, and then hopefully we can kind of dig into that and, and go into various asset classes and, and pick that apart.
2: Okay, let's take a broad sense. Starting with the equity markets, there's no way one cannot be impressed by the action of the, of the equity markets off the March lows. We could try to fool ourselves and say, hey, this is a bear market rally, this is euphoria, this is mania. You can fool yourself by saying that. But looking at the market itself, market action itself, market action itself, not taking looking at sentiment, look at the way the market's acting, The market's acting superbly. There's many examples we can discuss to, to suggest that the market's acting superbly. Firstly, all the, all the next classes are, are, are rallying. I'm not seeing a lagging small caps, I'm not seeing a lagging large caps, I'm not seeing a lagging technology. At this point, basically the participation is full and worldwide. And the the way I was brought up in this business is when you see full participation, it's generally a bullish phenomenon rather than a negative phenomenon. Now, many people are arguing, hey, this is a bubble, the bubble of all bubbles, simply because everything is rallying. There might be some logic to that. It might be the bubble of all bubbles because everything is rallying. But if you look at the history of bubbles, history of bubbles were a concentrated rally in one or two asset classes. You had the gold bubble in the 1980s. You had the uh, nifty-fifty bubble, so-called, in, in the mid-70s. You had the uh, South Sea bubble in the 1700s. You had the real estate bubble in 2005, 2006, 2007. But you've never seen an oil bubble, an market bubble. So therefore, who tells me, based on historical evidence, who tells me that there's such a thing as an oil market bubble? If all markets are doing well, and even doing exceedingly well, and even they're so-called overvalued, maybe there's some fundamental factor that's driving these markets higher rather than strictly a speculative factor. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying that I know the answer to this question. I just want to ask this question. These things are actually looking good. Let me give you some examples, if you don't mind, because the, 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 really the, the market participation began basically off the October lows, We had a September 10% correction roughly in the NASDAQ. We had a test in late October. The late October test took place on what we call a cycle date, the Montgomery cycle date, October 30th. And it's, it's since then that the markets have been taken off worldwide. You know, the small caps have been meeting, the, the large caps have been rallying. Nine, the cyclical started turning. So I'm generally associated with the bull markets rather than with the end of a bubble. October 28th, which was near the low, near the test of the low, you had a major oversold condition because you had fewer than 10% of the stocks in the SP 500 closing above the 10-day moving average. is oversold. We had a 9-1 downside, to upside volume day of the SP 500, and looking at the two-day new highs. When people look at six-month new highs and looking, people look at uh, uh, one-year new highs. We try often look at concentrated new highs. Look at the number of highs on a two-day basis, because that shows you trading points. We like to focus on trading points. You look at the number of two day new highs, fewer than 3% of the SP 500 closed at a two day high on October 28th. That was a sign of oversold. But there's healthy oversold and there's there's unhealthy oversolds. There are oversold conditions that lead to continued decline, like in the major bear market, like from 2000 to 2002, there are many oversold conditions that led to further decline. Or from 1929 to 1933, there are many oversolds that led to further decline. So, really, what you like to see is what did the market do post that oversold condition? What did the market do following? that oversold condition. So on November 4th, which was three days off the low, the S&P had gained 1.6% twice, two days in a row, 1.6% or greater. Something like this has happened seven times since 1969. Six of the seven times was the bull market, and the median gain was 21.92% over the next 12 months. So right away, three days after that low, after that oversold, it's a one positive development. So this suggests that this development this is not bubble development, this is bull market development. On uh, November 5th, which was four days off the low, the S P gained in value 1.5% for three days in a row. 1.5% gained in value three days in a row. This too, historically, has taken place nine times. Each case that has taken place was after the end of a bear market, early in the bull market, and the median gain over the next 12 months was 21.9%. That's November, let's get a little further out. November 9th, again, just a couple of weeks from the lows of October, November 9th, the S&P had gained 1.1% in five or six days. Very rare occurrence. It happened off the lows in seventy four. It happened off the lows in 1982. And it happened twice in November, November 5th, November 9th. But the two previous instances saw market gain a medium of 28% over the next 12 months. So just giving these few examples, it's clear that market action is bullish action. Market action, the board participation, the type of technical issues you saw off the October loans is clearly bullish action. The only question is, is this bullish action, you know, we're up 30, 40 percent of some of the small caps. Is this the end of the move or is this uh, a thrust, a beginning of a a move? We don't really know the answer to that, but what we do is we try to see is the market continuing exhibiting bull market action. Sort of bull market action coming off the lows. They continue exhibiting bull market action a month or two or three months after the lows? Let's go to December, which was like a month and a half off the lows. And on December, uh, December 4th, we use a broad index. It's actually not our own index. I don't want to say who this provider is. It's a major institutional service provider that creates their own equity indices. Their equity index on a five-week basis had a breath thrust of two to one using weekly data. Five weeks, two to one. The five-week breadth thrust in an overbought market has taken place four times in the past, and the gain over the next 12 months was 19.9%. So this is again off the lows, you saw bullish action, significantly bullish action with participation beginning in the small caps, as well as the large caps, as well as the tech stocks, beginning of the trade cyclicals. Five weeks, or six weeks after the low, you see a five week breath rush, which means that this bull move is continuing. Then you get low, that's December, you get into January, and in January you start seeing um, Russell gaining 1.7% two days in a row. SP 600, 14 to 1 upside issues, the 41 AD line. You see um, more than 80 stocks at the SP and 500 at 52 week new highs. This is early in January. You saw the 10-day um, uh, uh, volume thrust, upside down volume thrust in the NASDAQ of 1.89. A very, very rare occurrence. When you combine that with the Russell gaining 1.8% for two days in a row, and the Russell gaining 1.5% three days in a row, that only happened in 1994, as the market was taking off, the market gained 20% percent over the next 12 months. So getting into January, you're continuing to see bullish action. Let's go to, this early January 7th, for example, S&P is at a six-month high. S&P 600 at a 10-day rate of change greater than 8%. So when right in history, there was the S&P at a six-month high, which is the big caps. And at the same time, the S&P small caps, S&P 600, gained more than 8% over a 10-day period. Now, that was pretty rare. It happened 12 times since 1991. And the median gain in 12 months is 17.39% with no beer market. It never took place in a beer market. Yeah. So the action we're seeing is bull market action, significant return over the next 12 months, taking place as its market is rallying. So rather than seeing signs of exhaustion as the market's rallying, we're seeing continued broad participation as the market's rallying. Now, again, people are arguing that this broad participation is a negative. Wow, it's, a, it's an all market bubble. But looking at the data itself and not being biased at all by the, uh, by the talk of bubble or by the, 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 the talk of overvaluation and the, the idea of Robin and speculation, not looking at this kind of not data based action, but more sentiment and more uh, opinionated action, looking at data itself, this is the kind of data you see in bull moves. Another example January 8th, which is a very strong bull market move. SP closed at a three year high. People will argue three-year high. Wow, bubble, 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 three-year high. More than 60 stocks, the S&P ran a 52-week high, and the NDX gained and quarter percent for two days in a row into a three-year high in the S&P. This, again, since 1986 has happened only 10 times, it never happened in the bear market. The greatest drawdown ever after this action was 5.4%. The median drawdown was 1.6%, and the median gain in 12 months is 25.33%. So again, now we're, we started in October with the oversold low. We go to November with a major participation of the lows with the small caps, the big caps, the tech stocks, the sickle starting to turn. In December, you start seeing 5 breath thrusts. And in, in, in January, you start seeing 10-day rates changed, of change, Numbers, new highs expanding. All things would take place in the bull market. So to argue this is a bubble, to argue this is late market action, it's a very, very difficult argument to make. Let's go now from January to February. Does this bull action continue in February? Now, go to February. Let's take February eighth. S and a at new one-year high. At that same day, Russell gained one and a quarter percent three days in a row. But look back in history. When have you ever seen the S and P at a one-year high, closing at at least one-year high, with the Russell gaining one and a quarter percent for three days in a row, which is a very rare occurrence. And the answer is, it only happened three times. But twice it happened during this bull market. You know, in February eighth and January seventh. But it happened twice off the eighty-two lows. October eighth, October eleventh, eighty-two. And the median gain in 12 months is 28%. So again, in February, we are also seeing continuation of action, which is generally bull market action. Uh, now let's get to February 10th. NASDAQ, on a 10-day basis, it's, it's advanced decline is 1.6 to 1. Look back in history. Where did you see the NASDAQ 10-day AD 1.6 to 1 for the first time in 30 days? You see it very often multiple signals. Well, this happened quite a number of times, 22 times. Never happened in a bear market except once, July 7th, 2011. So over the 22 times it happened, only once did it take place in a bear market. In that case, um, uh, the market did decline 18%, but in each of the other cases, the, the, the market was up significantly with a median gain of 21% over the next 12 months. So here you have an indicator, signal 22 times, 21 out of 22 times took place early in a bull move. So the probability that I suggest you can get into February, that was continuing and bull market type action. This is the kind of thing I like to do. I've often made mistakes of reading headlines and taking people's opinions or reading other analysts' research basically it throws me off. And try not to be biased based on the idea that there's overvaluation, based on the idea that the speculators are buying and the retail public is in. I say if the market is showing bull market participation with all types of securities rallying, with markets worldwide rallying, with the indications, the data showing me. Data that historically takes faith during bull markets, I have to say, give the benefit of the doubt to the fact that we're in a bull market. Let's go to February 12th. 10-day rate of change in the Russell, greater than 10%, very rare occurrence. NASDAQ 10-day volume thrust, 1.89 to 1. In other words, on a 10-day basis, upside volume versus downside volume in the NASDAQ was, 10, was 1.89 to 1. And the S&P closed with more than seventy new 52-week highs. This happened seven times in history, never ever in a bear market, the greatest drawdown after this kind of a reading was 4.52%, but the median gain in 12 months is 17.5%. This is already in February. So I'm getting data in February suggesting that the market's going to rally, so it's very difficult for me to say that we're absolutely close to a, a, a bull market peak. I'll, I'll get my last signal in February, on February 25th. Russell gained one and a quarter percent for three days in a row, 12 days ago, and you saw a... 300% decline in the Russell today. This is really on February 25th. Russell down 300%. And people are saying, wow, this is the turn. This is it. Bull market is over. Market's declining. Look what happens on February 25th? Well, like I said, Russell's down 300% on February 25th, but it was up one and a quarter percent three, times, three days in a row, just 12 days prior. Has that ever happened before? And believe it or not, it happened twice before. It happened on August 11th, 2010, October 3rd, 2011. The median gain in those two cases is 29.25%. So I think, you know, what we're having currently is a, is a minor correction, you know, a minor correction could be as much as 10%. But the evidence here is so bullish, so bullish looking at the data, and I'm so infused by the fact that armchair technicians are saying we're in a bubble. I mean, the bubbles are making headlines. Never in my life have we been in a bubble when bubbles made headlines. Generally, you're in a bubble when bubbles aren't making headlines. Therefore, I am confident based on the data that the market should be headed higher, but I'm always watching the data to see if there's any reason to, for things to go wrong. And that's just looking at technical data. I think we should maybe talk about the fundamental side of it, but I wanted to stick to the technical side of it yeah. to
0: start. Well, Milton, let's, let's come, we'll come back to the, the fundamental stuff, because I think this technical thing is really interesting, because it, it, it brings up such a broad question in that uh, when you look back through history, and I'm really curious to know how you've adapted, because When you look back through history, at no other time in all your previous examples that you're using as framework with the the data the way it is today, have you had the entire central banking brotherhood of the world flooding the markets with liquidity? Obviously, it's a very different environment today. And so I think a lot of people that are are calling bubble are looking at the fact that the, the technical stuff that you're seeing is built upon an ocean of liquidity that cannot be withdrawn and I think that the, the people who don't look purely at technical indicators think well if if that goes away or even it gets reduced then the technical indicators become meaningless very fast so, so how have you adapted the way you you look at the technicals to incorporate that fact or do you do you have to mentally completely ignore that because whether it's there or not it doesn't I'm actually
2: that's an excellent question I'm actually using that background that's further evidence that we're in a bullish move. Let me tell you what I mean. Historically, when there's inflation, the market gets worried. because They're worried that the Fed is going to tighten. Now we have central banks that basically are stating they're not going to tighten unless they see real, real inflation. Historically, when the economy is strong, it's coming out of a recession, initial strength, central banks don't tighten. Later on in the cycle, when the strength continues, that they do tighten. No one can argue that, as strong as the economy may be in 2021, we're still coming off a recessionary period. Central federal banks, no matter what, never tighten as soon as we come off a recessionary period for one reason. They consider the recovery fragile. They may be wrong about that. They're always talking about it's a fragile recovery. Powell was saying this all along. They cannot take the chance of tightening in a fragile recovery. You may be right, or you, you probably are right should the Fed start tightening, should central banks tightening, this whole thing could collapse. But to be su- suggest that the collapse is imminent is not evident in the way central banks are acting at this point. It's not evident in the way the markets are acting at this point. So why make that bet at this time? Now, th- th- uh, that's what I would say.
1: I was, I was just going to make a, a point on that topic. Um, and, and that is, it seems to me that it could be the case that we are in a uh, massive bubble in, in, in all sorts of assets because of the consequences of central banks doing what they're doing and uh, negative rates, printing money, all of that. But it could, seems to me, and you're the expert, it could also be the case that we are in those bubbles, but they are still technically analyzable and they're not ready to burst yet. I mean, so it seems to me both could be true. We are in a massive bubble, but yet. There's nothing that says that it's ready to die, to die yet. I mean, can't both those thoughts be true at once?
2: I think, I think it definitely could be true at once. Well, let me define what a bubble is. A bubble basically means that once it's pricked, the whole move up disappears. and We get back to the original lows. In this case, we probably get back to the war. You know, some of them are saying we go back to we were in, in 2000, believe it or not. So I don't know what they're saying. But how much of this rally is, is Fed-based? And how much of this rally is based on, a, on, a, on, a, on a economic recovery? We don't know. We don't know. And yes, if they should pull, uh, pull, pull liquidity out, any, any market, any index that is rallying based on liquidity will decline. But I think, I like to use the term bubble when you're at the end game. I'll give you an example. If you read the history of the stock market in the 20s, everyone considers the 1929 peak as a bubble. It was a bubble because the Federal Reserve was loosening and uh, increasing the money supply 1926, 27, 28. First of all, was great, there was a great deal with Depression in, in 1920, which was not a Great Depression because I think Calvin Coolidge decided not to do about it, so the, the free market took care of it on its own. But the, the central bank, you know, the new central bank, they they were they didn't want to see another depression or, or recession. They kept easing and easing and easing. Also, they were attempting to help the Bank of England read the history. The Bank of England was, was worried about an outflow of gold. So the Federal Reserve was easing and easing and easing. 2026, 1926, 27, 28 and early 29, till September. If someone would have argued in 26 or 27 we're in a bubble, it would have been a valid argument. Because the market rally was based on Fed easing. It wasn't an actionable bubble. Because we weren't at the end of the bubble, we were at the early early bubble. So yes Fleck, I agree with you. Maybe the only reason the stock markets are moving up is because of the central bank easing. Maybe it's not grounded in any real economy, but to suggest that we're at the end of the bubble, I I don't see that. I think most people using the bubble are, are. I'll I'll worry about the end of the bubble. Another argument I want to make about this is is that um, Fed easing is not all that's been pushing up this market. I mean, look at the history of the world. We've been in a historic bull market in bonds beginning in September, October 1981. The 30-year Treasury was yielding 15.3% in October 1981. The 30-year Treasury went down to less than 1% in March of 2020. A zero-coupon bond, which is the most equivalent of a total return of stock, a zero-coupon bond purchased in October uh, uh, 1981, rolled over each year to another 30-year zero-coupon bond, would have yield at 18% per annum over a nearly 40-year period. So if there's anything that has been boosting the stock market, it certainly was the bond market. There's, bond, there's no growth in the bond market, there's no Apple, there's no Microsoft, there's no Intel, there's no nothing. It's just a financial asset. Yeah, if you can find a financial asset other than the stocks that's growing 18% per annum since 1980, there's no reason for stocks, which are a growth asset, not to do equivalent. And it has done equivalent, only up 12% since 1980 per annum. It's so underperformed bonds. So, yeah, maybe it's a bubble, but it, then bonds are in a bigger bubble, and the bond bubble is is supporting the stock bubble. And right. there's no evidence <laughs> that the bubble. And there's no evidence the bubble is ending. So why why play as if it's ending? Now I made this a big mistake. I thought COVID ended the bubble. That's what I thought. But I, didn't, I, didn't, I couldn't go back in history and look at COVID. I never had COVID before. And instead of sticking to the data, I started sticking to for the fundamental, the, you know, and, and, and it threw me off pace a little bit. But the data of the March lows, March, April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November, December, January, February, and even March is all confirming we're in a bull market. So, so why Fi is what I would say at this point.
1: Well, I think that that you just made the case for the everything bubble and also at the same time that even if it is, it doesn't do any good to know that because what you really need to know is when it ends. And I, I mean, I remember vividly, I was still running my short fund in both of the prior two bubbles. And again, it was knowable they were bubbles, but you couldn't do anything about it until there were signs that it was ending. And my belief is some combination of uh, exhaustion and central bank uh, hostility, so to speak, are needed to end a bubble. And as we all know, the Fed isn't even thinking about thinking about raising rates. And so it, it, it would it would it it would be unprecedented for the bubble to end without some sort of central bank. Um, like I, I totally say, agree. But let, let, let,
2: let's look at bubble in the past. Let's look at bubble in the past. Nineteen twenty nine. As Fed started raising rates in late 28, right. got aggressive in September, October of 29. They got aggressive. And that picked the bubble. But guess what? Then there was a the Great Depression. There's some arguing, some fundamental value people arguing that since we was more overvalued on many measures than it was in 29, the next bear market would be far worse than it was in 29 to 33. They might be right, but there's no, no evidence based on that. They have to predict the Depression as well. Because without a depression, you're not going to have the S&P 500 down 95% or 90%. You're just not going to see it. No matter how overvalued we are, we're not going to get down, now. So that's, anyway, the Fed tightened then. The Fed tightened again in 1968, which was really a bubble. People have noticed it wasn't an S&P bubble, but they called the -the over-the-counter. I actually had this book right behind me called The Gogo Years. I mean, it's crazy what took on, you know? Ken Langone is a famous guy now, but he brought up um, EDS public. EDS was uh, Ross Perot's company. Yeah, yeah bought a public in the early 60s at 100 times earnings. Never before was a company bought public at 100 times earnings, early 60s, bubble, bubble, bubble. The bull market continued another seven years. So now we're talking about, you know, we know the crazy IPO market, bubble, bubble, bubble. Yeah, but I, I can't tell you it's not going to continue another three, four years. I can't tell you that based on the fact that it's a bubble. Another very important fundamental factor, and I, and I, I, and I got into this business, I a pure fundamentalist. Balance sheet analysis, income statement analysis, interviewing management, you know, all this stuff. I found a lot of fraud. I found a interesting situation with hidden assets. You know, so I started in the business. But I really believed in Benjamin Graham because he taught me everything I knew. He wasn't my, I did went to school with him, but I read his books. And Benjamin Graham has consistently claimed that the stock market is overvalued. Consistently. He had the Graham formula, which uses a 10-year PE. And he is discounted by twice the, the AAA corporate bond. He found, like in 1962, basically he found markets consistently overvalued. And um, when I got into business, I say, hey, these markets are overvalued, overvalued, overvalued. Guess what? I think? He had overvalued for the next 40, 50 years. <laughs> Valuations change. Paul Montgomery used to say, valuation is all on the mind. No such thing as a true valuation. Two people can look at the same piece of art and give it a different valuation. Two people can look at the same piece of real estate and give it a different valuation. People want to argue... That all stocks are is a present value of the future cash flow. That's maybe statistically, but the people who are making those evaluations are, are human beings of the brain. So some people will discount the cash flow at one rate, some people will discount the cash flow at another rate, and some people will say this is a growth company, and there's never been an overvalued true growth company. and That's an argument I just discovered later. I looked at, at some of the high flyers in 1974, 72, some of the high flyers in, in 1987, some of the high flyers. In 2000, some of the high flies in 2007, and most of them, of course, collapsed. But there's some true growth stocks that continue showing 15, 16, 18, 20% gains per annum on average off the peaks of those bubbles. Microsoft is one example, Apple is one example, uh, Nike is one example. So the argument I'm making is, is that, yes, based on evaluation, you can say it's overvalued, it's the bubble. But you can't trade based on valuations. You never could. Valuations are in the mind. And if, if, if investors out there are willing to uh, price the SP 500 at an average of 22 times earning rather than historical 15 times earning, so be it until something changes.
0: Let me, let me ask you because as you go through this stuff, I find what you do fascinating. But it just, the question that I keep kind of rattling around my head is the difference between being an investor and being a trader right now because it feels to me like this bubble, let's call it a bubble for the sake of argument for now, even though we can't say if it's ending or not. But to invest in a bubble versus trading in a bubble are two very, very different things and two very, very different mindsets to try and square away. Because if I'm an investor and I'm looking at these valuations, and and I watched your great conversation with John Hussman recently uh, talking about this, this idea, right? And for anybody to invest, to put money to work for the long term at these valuations requires um, an enormous amount of faith and, and a big decision, whereas to trade it based on all the signals that you're showing, it almost seems easy, but at the same time incredibly complicated because those signals must be swinging around a hell of a lot. So what have you found in the I last couple of
2: years? Your question is the, the most important question to stock market investors. Warren Buffett has had a boatload of cash for 10 years. Yeah. Because he's found that the market is overvalued. He can't find enough individual companies to purchase with his hundreds of billion dollars in cash. Yeah. What's the individual investor who has a million dollars in his pension fund going to do if he doesn't invest in stocks? Of course, he should have invested in bonds, but no one suggested investing in bonds if <laughs> they had a five percent and a four percent and three percent yield. Hey, bonds are overvalued, and they get down to one so percent. So far, I called the revenge of the nerds. The greatest investors. But those who are afraid of the stock market and bought the long-term treasury over the last 40 years, those are the best investors. Yeah. But in reality is a typical guy isn't going to do it. So you're not, you're not going to buy bonds, especially not now with a 2% yield. He's not going to buy, buy stocks because they're overvalued. What's he going to do? he be left in cash. And as we know, cash, cash doesn't work. But by real estate, the argument that he made in real estate is just as overvalued as stocks are on a historical basis, on a cash flow basis. He asked you a good question. Maybe logically someone, I, I made the argument that once the long-term bond market turns, we'll see a 30-year bear market in stocks. We'll see it. Yeah, maybe, I, I don't know what a long-term investor will do with his money, other than do what Benjamin Graham said, when the general market is overvalued, man in cash, and wait for Mr. Market to give you bargains. Yeah. We're waiting quite a number of decades for Mr. Market to give us sufficient bargains to pound the table and to say to buy stock. I mean, at the lows of 2007, maybe. That was the last time, the lows of 2008. But since 2008, 2020, the market has really not given us opportunity to buy stocks on the cheap. Yeah, were able to buy stocks cheaper than it was six months prior, but even at that moment, it wasn't cheap. So you're asking a good question. I don't have the answer. The Investors don't have the answer. And, and maybe you mentioned John Hussman. He's a brilliant analyst, and he's suggesting that it's due to a violation of oh, all the invest in the market. And unfortunately, people who do those things basically haven't. Unless they got into bonds, hundred percent bonds, really haven't earned money over the last decade or so. So this is the problem. This is probably one of the things driving the market up because I'm not, you know, let's say it's a bubble. Let's say it's overvalued. value. Let's see if the next bear market will go down to, you know, we'll lose, lose 60, 70, 80%. Let's see that happens. But until then, what's going to cause it is the fact that so many investors decided I can't hold cash, they got to put it into the market. Good question. My answer wasn't that great. Excellent question. That is the question that investors have to ask and find you a good answer.
1: Milton, no, let me ask you this. Um, You can put your technical hat on and go through all this, but you started out as a fundamental analyst and you're aware of all of it. So if you took your technical hat off for a second and we just talked about sort of the unprecedented nature of what the central banks are doing and the fact that it would appear based on everything that's happened that they really don't have any policy options, but to be easy. So in some sense, you could say they're trapped Uh, At least that's been the case so far. They've never been able to, you know, since they started on this mission of easing, they have not been able to stay sort of cut off the spigot for very long, so to speak. Um, So my question to you is, as a man who knows history, it seems like we're doing something that can't last, but it's lasted a long time and we don't know how long it can last. Have you given any thought to how the period might end? You mentioned something about the bond market not cooperating. Um, in, 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 you 19, in
2: 1986, there was, one, was a great technical analyst named G. Stanley Bursch. Yeah, we used yeah, to I not take his service. Okay, not too many people know about Not The youngest i heard of the guy, but his, his daughter Susan does a tremendous job. But G. Stanley Bursch, I was at a meeting at Oppenheimer in 1986. And he came in and he said, we don't know the end. I know the, it will end in no, 86, 35 years ago. It's going to end one way, one of two ways. either a massive depression and deflation or a massive hyperinflation. He didn't know the answer at that time. 35 years later, I don't know the answer. So let's put on our magic hat and assume <laughs> the answer will be inflation rather than depression. Okay. Don't you wanna get in stocks?
1: Yeah, you bubble, want to bubble
2: get Hyperinflation, let's stay in stocks because stocks do better than bonds in, in a period of hyperinflation. I don't know the answer. I know the market's telling me at this point, that it's going to move higher. Maybe what's going to cause it is the, like we saw in the Weimar Republic. I don't know the answer. No. Milton, t- t- if
0: you would, just, just explain to people how you made that transition from a fundamental analyst to a technical analyst. Because for, for fundamental guys, it, it's very difficult, and I've I've suffered from this myself, to trust technicals, just blindly trust them. Because you when you look at valuations, particularly in times like this, the technicals can be screaming at you, but your, your kind of DNA, if you're a value guy, if you're a, a fundamental guy, says don't go anywhere near that. So how, how did you make that transition? How how difficult a transition was it? And how did you kind of learn to stop worrying and love the charts?
2: There are two stories, two stories. Number one is in 1979, I went to a meeting of the New York Society of Security Analysts. And the speaker, featured speaker, was a fellow named Ned Davis. I never heard of him before. Yep. 1979. And this is a security analyst, we're all fundamentalists. And this is Benjamin Graham and that type of an organization. And they invited Ned Davis to speak, and he wasn't talking only fundamental. he talked a lot of technical analysis. I, I was just fascinated, I just couldn't believe what I was seeing, like, this is, not, this is impossible. He showed what, if you, if, you, if you shorted the market every time there's an extreme sentiment, something about it, and you put every time there's a extreme on the downside, you know, bear, bearish sentiment, you would have made money 99% of the time, and I said that doesn't make any sense. You know, <laughs> just looking at sentiment. I mean, all this. Thing. That was my first. That was my first uh, um, um, exposure to technical analysis. Because I was a pure fundamentalist. There's something more. And secondly, I realized as a fundamentalist, you know, I was one of the early CFA's. I'm like six thousand eight hundred eighty-one. There are now hundreds of thousands of CFA's in the world. As a as a, as a, as a I'm competing with thousands and thousands and thousands of fundamental analysts. And on average, they're just doing average. You know. Well, I didn't have an edge as a fundamental analyst, as, as, as smart as I thought I might be, I didn't have an edge. Yeah. When I realized there are so few people really doing pure technical work, I put my mind to it and it took me quite a number of years, we were talking 40 years of research, constant research, so I finally got a hang of it, uh, what I think is a proper hang of it. That's number one. Number two is, in 1980, I, I, I tried to write an article for Barron. I've been featured in Barron a number of times since then on the technical side. But I tried to write a fundamental piece on Barron, suggesting that the market is overvalued, based strictly on Graham and Dodd analysis. I took companies apart, I took indexes apart, and I found the market, yes, was nearly 100 overvalued. Couldn't find the cheap stock. And Barron, and Barron rejected the article because it's not going to help anybody. It's not going to help anybody. You have a bull, you have a bull market. You know, you're telling people stocks are overvalued based on Graham and Dodd. This is not going to help any, and guess what, 40 years later, 50 years later, whatever it is, that article that made no sense because as much as Graham and Dodd found it overvalued, it was no value. A, there was inflation unanticipated. B, there was unanticipated growth. C, was a change from an industrial economy to a service economy. All of these things contribute, in a capitalist society contribute to unanticipated growth and you had a great long-term bull market and bonds. These are the kinds of things that Benjamin Rand could not have anticipated. Yeah. Not anticipated. And these are things that move the markets. So those, these two things together told me, you know, let me focus on the technicals. I quote market analysis rather than technicals. My technical analysis is not similar to the kind of technical analysis most people look at. I don't look at things everyone else looks at, like moving averages. You never find me talking about a moving average. I'm looking about extremes in data in a, in a compact basis. For example, we just got a, a so-called Celsius, not a major Celsius, but based on the 65 day average, of the advanced decline line. Rate of change, not the level of the advanced, but the rate yeah. of change. Very few people look at the rate of change of the advanced decline line. Secondly, that's front weighted. So if the last 15 days had a sharper decline in the AD line than you saw over the last 65 days, that has greater weight as this indicator. Now this indicator is not a great indicator because of all signals in the past, the median decline after the sell signal is only 5%. But it has pulled four of the tops of the major bull market. It pulled the tops in 2000, the top of the 87, we called the top in um, uh, a couple of months earlier 19, in 2018. We called the number of tops. So I say it's just signal. Let me get a little bit cautious now because a worst come to worst, we'll get the median decline of five percent. Maybe I'm wrong about all the other stuff, and maybe we're headed for a bubble pop and we'll be down to 40 percent, which happened. So this is what I look at. Um, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. No, 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 no. You are. Just see. The Reality is you have to assume that any correction now will be. Any correction will cause a lot of panic because everyone is worried bubble. This is it. This is it. This is it. You know how many people have said, you know, with the market peaks in September, some great hedge fund managers, this is it. Tech, tech boom is over. And then when you had the, uh, the Robin Hood situation in January, this is it. Tech, tech, the, the bubble is over. And now the Nasdaq's down 8% and the SP is down some 3%. And people are saying, this is it. The bubble is over. I don't think the bubble will be over when people recognize the bubble is being over. But, uh, you know, I, I have to keep an open mind. Um, it, it, it's not an easy business. It's never been an easy business, it never will be an easy business. Fortunately, I spent uh, uh, most of my career analyzing data and coming up with new data. I, I had a lot of help from a lot of friends in this business who taught me things that otherwise never would have known. I mean, Ned Davis Research, Ned Davis himself, a, a major analyst. G. Stanley Burge, I followed his work for 30, 35 years, major analyst. I, I lived in the times that Edson Gould, who was a major analyst, he was the first really person to really tie in Fed policy. The stock market movement, it wasn't a, a commonly known uh, feature of the market, believe it or not. People thought this Fed action in the stock market movement, no one really associated with two. Until i Gould sort of discovered the, 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 uh, the um, uh, three steps in the stumble rule. So in any event, um, there's a lot to look at, a lot to study. And um, of course, I also worked with some of the greats in the business. I worked with Stan Druckenmiller, I worked with uh, Michael Steinart I worked with uh, George Soros. Michael Stein was a, was a true fundamentalist, but he also traded on what he called um, uh, special data. He's got a lot of special data and stuff, whatever that means, but he he on fundamental data. But a guy like Stan and a guy like George Soros, of course, they're great fundamentalists, but they, they don't uh, this discount technical analysis at all. They don't yeah. discount it at all. But I focus more on the technical. I, I'm very well versed in, in the fundamental aspect, of, fundamental aspect of the market, very well versed in it, but can I make a trade based on fundamentals? Hope I never do that again, because when I do it, I make a mistake.
1: <laughs> do, do you think, have you looked into the um, market share of the passive investment community has warped market trading to me and changed the structure of the market? And I don't know if if you've looked into uh, how pervasive that is. And if you have, has it caused you to have to tweak some of the things you look at or is would it not matter to your data no matter no matter what?
2: Well, it does, it does affect data. There's, there, there's much data that, data extremes you see now since 2008, 2008, 2021, that you haven't seen in the past. Data based on um, breath, volume breath, data based on um, issue breath, data based on training, which is a combination of data breath and issue breath and volume. There definitely has been an increase of extremes but when I, uh, and, and, and it's a valid question, but so far, it really hasn't had a major effect on how these indicators work. Because even in a situation where all this passive investors going into index funds and so on, the nature of the extremes change, but the action of the market often extreme doesn't change. I'll give you a great example. One of the best indicators for bull market move was a double nine to 1 upside volume day. Two days in a row, or two days in a short period of time, but I prefer two days in a row, of more than nine times upside volume to downside volume. That stopped working in 2014. But now, if you use 15 to 1, then a 9 to 1, you, you eliminate the false signals, and now you have indicators that work again. So you have, there's some tweaking, there's some adjusting. I look at, I, I'm looking at these all the time. Um, and um, uh, yeah, now, well, one of the main adjustments, one of the main problems I've had is I, I, I analyzed the S&P going back to 1928. But there's no S&P in 28, yeah. like 50, 60, 70 stocks. It's only 1958 that we got 500 stocks. So sometimes when I use data from the 20s and I try to extrapolate that to the 2020s, it just doesn't work. So that's why, that was probably more of, a, more of an adjustment, analyzing data than, than the adjustment of, uh, of the passive trading. Having an S, a broad market index with 500 stocks, I mean, it was a Dow Jones 30 industrials, and the S&P was maybe at 50 or 60 stocks in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. So that's an adjustment, but believe it or not, the the broader the index, the more efficient the signals are. Because it's more difficult to get an extreme reading in a broad index than it is to get in a narrow index. So I'm looking for real extremes. An extreme reading in an index of 500 stocks will give me more important data than an extreme reading in an index of 30 stocks. That's why we rarely use the Dow, and that's why I'm very excited when I see breath thrust in the Russell 2000 you are talking about two thousand stocks as opposed to five hundred stocks. Yeah. So um, yeah, there's a lot of adjustments to be made. We're making the adjustments. we make making, you know, I'm we're adjustments every day. I, I work with myself. I have a staff. I have an outside um, an outside data service company to make sure my data is correct and to feed me the data every day, and we we do the best we can. It's it's certainly a lot of work. How did you
0: manage this through the kind of I guess the early period of um, COVID? Because I mean, I noticed you were getting so many signals. Backwards and forwards. You were getting bullish signals and well, then bearish signals. And that, is that noise that you have to try and look through, or do you have to stay straight? Turn early
2: to COVID. The- be honest with early COVID. Yeah. Um, the market got oversold very early. February of 2020 got oversold and continued having oversold readings throughout the decline. But, you know, get oversold. As I say, oversold is never enough because, as I said, in 1929 to 33, many oversold emissions. Followed by lower load. So you have to wait look and wait for wait for the turn. The oversold indicator didn't work that well, except um, you know, listen, the data was correct and my analysis was wrong. Let's put it had I stuck to I the data itself. The turn in March, April was sufficient to uh, position long, regardless of, of the fact the oversold didn't work on the way down. Um, I, I also had a data error, I had a data error, believe it or not, because I was looking for, the type of decline we had should have seen record volume on the, it, it, during the decline. Yeah. My data showed it was the second highest in history rather than record volume. Believe it or not, I think that makes a difference. But I, I didn't have the proper composite volume indicators. In retrospect, we did see record volume in March. Had I known that the volume in March was record volume, it would have flipped many, many more bullish indicators as mm-hmm. a turn case. That was the error in my data, which I I, 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 the I could do, about but that, that was the error.
1: I wanted to ask you a related question, Milton. As I said, I, I take your service, and there were periods where, you know, your, your signals kind of were kind of choppy, and if I'd have been trading on them, I would have got chopped up some. And the reason I bring that up is because when I used to run my short fund, I had requests from one of my big uh, investors who wanted to see my trades, and I said no way, because I knew myself that at important inflection points. Well, what happened was, because with shorts, you know, you have to manage your risk carefully. You know, sometimes I remembered sometimes I'd put the same stock. I'd put it on, take it off, put it on, you know, three times in a day because I thought there was a turn at hand. And it was difficult enough for me to be able to have the mental fortitude to to do that. But if somebody was looking over my shoulder, I kept thinking it would hamper my ability to do that because I'd feel so stupid. And what's sort of I admired about about you is when uh, there was a I can't remember when it was a few choppy periods, it, it didn't seem like you let that bother you. But I was wondering how do you because somebody's looking over your back at all your trades in a sense when you're putting this out and when they get choppy, how do you how do you block that out?
2: Well, well, it's a good question. When I when I uh, when I trade them, um, when I write my research and I, we shift a position and we're trading, it's difficult, but. Basically, I'm not dealing really with people, I'm still, still just dealing with data. I'm not dealing with you personally, right, Bill? I, 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 we, don't, we don't talk a lot, right? Sure, I'm not dealing sure. with people, I'm dealing with data. So the fact that we go by shoulder really is, it, doesn't, it doesn't hit me so much. But when you're managing money, when people are really over your shoulder, then it, then it just just wouldn't work. It really takes away from flexibility. I, I understand exactly what you're saying, and that's, that's true, you know, there's, there's, re, there's, there's research... Um, Talent and this trading talent. I think I have the trading talent within the research because my research is sort of is trading oriented. So I think I have the research uh, talent and the trading talent works together in the kind of research I do. It's not passive research; it's very active research, very active uh, suggestions. Mm-hmm. But I, I may also, you know, um, I, uh, I mentioned this to Grant when we had our interview with him in the past. Most of the personalities on Wall Street, for some reason or other, are able to social distance themselves. In other words, they have to put themselves in a the bubble that allows them to trade. And I worked, I don't want to mention any names, but people might take it wrong. Almost everybody I work has some sort of quirk in their personality that allowed them to be able to trade without being affected emotionally by what the world is saying. And I will give you one example. I don't want to mention a name, it's not right. But in March 2000, during that market collapse, I was working with a fellow who was on the wrong side of the market. And the worst. Emotion I saw from him was he took a pencil out of his pocket and threw it against the wall. In all the years I worked with him, that was the worst emotional outburst I've seen from him. This is a world-class investor and trader. So the, the people are successful. aren't just successful because they have brains. They aren't just successful because they understand markets. They're successful because something in their personality that puts them in a bubble that can protect them from outside influences. All of yeah. them. Really. All of them.
0: Let me ask you, the, the recent kind of frenzy we saw with the retail investors, with GameStop and all the, the, the option buying, did, did that uh, mess with your signals? Was it not a factor or did some of the stuff that happened there kind of either corrupt or enhance the signals that you were seeing?
2: No, no, it didn't. It just added to the volume, did add to the volume. But, you know, I, I don't care where the volume comes from. Right. So increasing volume is generally bullish. It depends where it takes place. You have to know the context of the volume. But increasing volume is generally bullish. No, I don't think it affected me at all. It, was, it really it was such a narrow area, it was very non-sufficient, mostly non-sophisticated traders doing all that kind of stuff. It's not as if the whole world was involved in Reddit and, and, and GameStop, it really wasn't. And, and I, I don't think that's the sign that the a bubble was Right, so it, mean,
0: didn't, it didn't corrupt any you, of
2: things, it, it? Um, Grant, if you would start trading with Reddit, I'd say, wow, this is a bubble. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I couldn't find Reddit. You wake up think. in the morning
2: and see what Reddit, what the Reddit traders are saying, and, and act upon the them. I say, "Oh, this is kind of crazy," but you know, most of the people who did it were not the kind of people that are re- really sophisticated investors and let them move the money they like to. I, I didn't see it. I didn't get affected. You know, I didn't see it. All the problems is the, the newspaper, the, the 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 CNBCs and the and the uh, financial uh, markets and the, and the headlines of the uh, of this news we focusing on these kind of things. But this is not focusing on it that much. Not, yeah. That's
0: not what's going on. You know, I, I want to ask you another question because at the end of our last conversation, we got into um, some really interesting and, and, frankly, esoteric stuff about, you know, we, we were talking about Montgomery Cycle, we were talking about moon phases. So so there will be people listening to this that haven't heard that. So let's talk a little bit about the things that you, you look at that are, you're kind of, for most people, off the beaten path. And just talk about the importance you place on them and, and how they work, because I think this will be fascinating for people to hear.
2: Okay, this is a story. Paul Montgomery was one of the greatest market analysts in the history of the stock market. He wasn't well-known by the public, but he's very well-known by institutional investors. Um, I don't, again, I'm not going to mention names, but m- most of the famous institutional investor trader types were clients of Paul Montgomery. Of course, he was quoted in Barron's. Uh, James Grant had him speak at his conferences occasionally. He was a brilliant analyst. And he himself, he passed away a number of years ago. He himself had an issue with he's a manic depressive. I don't know the technical, I don't know the medical term. I think bipolar
0: just, today. I think it's, that's bipolar, bipolar. today. It? Some
2: are bipolar. Yeah, some are bipolar. And he somehow discovered in his, in his, young, in his youth that. Um, there was a, there was a uh, correlation between his moods and market action. We didn't know which led which. Could be the market actually got, you know, Mark went down, and got him depressed. Mark got him before it could be. But that was how I mean, he got it to start studying. And the phenomenon he found was that there are certain aspects, certain things in the world that shift human emotion in a broad sense, human emotion in a broad sense. And he found that correlation he was talking about. He's the one who's, for example, bothered the Hemline indicator, you're probably not familiar with the hemline I mean, indicator. I am familiar with it, but yeah, there will so be people I. that won't be. Hemline indicator, when people are confident, women are confident in raising the hemlines, that's a sign that people are confident taking the market up. But that's bubble action that's going to ultimately turn down. He's the one who started the uh, magazine cover indicator. You know, when, when, when Microsoft made it to cover of Time maga- magazine in 1992, it stopped corrected 45%, even though it's a 1,000% since then. Or when Amazon made the cover in 2000, you know Amazon died 80 percent. Even ultimately, Amazon is up thousands and thousands percent. So he did that, but he did something else he discovered, which is not as well known, And that is that the there are lunar cycles. The other cycle I, I focus on his lunar cycles. Lunar cycles affect human psyche. What he found was whether the evidence of uh, of before in the market, accompanied by some sort of lunar cycle. I don't get into what the cycles are. It's not important. Yeah. Look out for a turn. So if you have the, the, the sentiment that technical factors are in line with the turn and you have this cycle, you should bet on that turn. Um, I'm going to give some examples. The greatest example that I traded was on December 24th, 2018, which is the day of the wall. Yep. We went leverage long that day based on the oversold condition and based on the Montgomery cycle. That is, that is the act of his cycle. But I have a list here of, of, of these cycles and see how they, how the market acted. Your viewers or your listeners will probably be fascinated by this. I'm not going to harp on anyone. But I, I have a list of the cycles from 2017 to 2019. These are all Montgomery, the late Paul Montgomery's discovery of cyclical work that turns markets. So on July 9th, 2017 was a minor cycle. Silver made it a final 16 months low on that day, gained 19.94%. Gold generated a four-month low on that day and gained and rallied 16%. NASDAQ declined 6% to a minor low and rallied 15% on that cycle day. Next cycle day was uh, July 23rd. The cycles run in cycle periods. They're like usually six cycles yeah. in a row period period. July 23rd, Russell generated an all-time high that day and then immediately corrected 7%. Um, August 7th, no action on the cycle. August 21st, 2000, we should call the major cycle. Russell 2000 made a 6.45% corrective low on that day. And, and rallied 11.44%. Let me try to get something of, uh, really exciting here. June 28th, 2018, cycle day. Bitcoin bottomed. It was down 70.32%. It made a low on that day, a seven-month low, and gained 46% in a month with July peak on a cycle date. So bottom on a cycle date made 46% into next month's cycle date. Made a seven-month low down 70%. Transport made a two-month low down 9%, and 14% into September. Thailand made a new 10-month low down 15%, and 12% into the September 21st cycle date. Deutsche Bank, financial crisis, made a 21-month low with most leveraged European bank all analysts were saying, short that stock, bottomed on the cycle date, gained 26% to its next peak. Okay, so these are just examples, I can go through all these examples. The main example that I like to mention is that December 24th, 2018, but we had leveraged longer. Then in January, you started seeing all these thrust signals confirming that the low was in. So it was like a classic low. Oversold low, Montgomery cycle, market turns, 10 days later, you start seeing the, the thrust that come off the low. And oil declined 23% into that August 26 cycle high. And oil has boomed up 70%. Energy's like Spider Fund bottomed it gains 56%. This is the October 31st, 2020 Montgomery cycle. Um, lumber declined 50% from the September high, and now it's gained to new highs, over 100% since that cycle. The US market generated a test of the September low. Now they've gained anywhere between 25% and 55%, depending on which index you look at. With small caps, European indexes, we look at the pickup the indexes. So that was October 31st, a great, great cycle. We just saw it. November 30th was a cycle. Um, and um, Bitcoin, Bitcoin was an amazing action that cycle. It peaked on the cycle, the cycle of a three day period it peaked, declined 16%, made a low on the cycle. And its last run up over 100% began on that cycle. So this is the latest cycle. So, yes. Sounds weird. Believe me, it sounds weird. But if you understand that there's more to the world than money. There's more to the world than the stock market. People, are, every every trade in the in the stock market is tra- is done by basically done by human beings. Yeah. Even the program trades are programmed by human beings. Right. So you can find something that affects the human psyche, and you're able to analyze yeah. it properly. Find something I totally that affects agree.
0: Totally agree. Totally yes. M- M- agree. you mentioned Bitcoin a couple of times there, and, and it seems that there is no purer asset to evaluate purely from a technical standpoint, because fundamentals are very difficult to to dream up with Bitcoin. So talk a little bit about what you've made of Bitcoin, how it's kind of fitted into your work, and whether it is a good fit for the kind of technical indicators you use, because I presume it must be.
2: Well, this is a sort of Bitcoin. We bit called the $18,000 top, basically to the week. December was it 2017? 17, yeah. It was a cycle date. And it was a climax top, a William O'Neill climax top. You know, as I say, I've learned from many people in the business, okay? If I had to spend my time discovering everything on my own, i have to live to a thousand years old. So I, I, I work, I use other people's stuff, and William O'Neill has major work on, on climax tops, usually in the stocks. But Bitcoin had a climax top into the December cycle day before Bitcoin started gapping up. can't really call it a gap, We look at New York trading to New York trading, it gapped up as a percentage above the Look at the percentage above the um, twenty the moving average. You looked at the fact that they were talking about opening up futures to change for Bitcoin. Yeah. All as it's yeah. topping. We called that top very well. We said the minimum decline in this type of a cycle top, this type of a climax top is 70%. Bitcoin did decline 70%. So that was a great call. But I can't say I've traded Bitcoin very well because I have a fundamental issue with Bitcoin. I wish I didn't have it. I was familiar with Bitcoin when it was trading in the pennies. And I didn't understand it. I still don't understand it. It may be one of, most, one of the most extreme bubbles in the history of the world. It may go back down to, to a penny or two. I, I don't know. But I've read all I can about Bitcoin. I've studied all I can about Bitcoin. I know they, they try to find a, an analogy with Bitcoin with these stones that were used in some island. I forget the name of these stones that were used, you know. But I found that money is, is – one of the most important things in the world is money to, to most people. Money, money, money. most important thing in the world. What is money? Is money truly just a fiction? Milton Friedman says modern money is just a fiction. It only works because people believe it's going to work. If that's the case that Bitcoin should be, you know, as long as people think it's money, let it be money. If that's all that takes money is fiction. But a fiction eventually could become defictionalized. You know, let's, let's face it, you know, it's, it's fiction today. People believe in it. And 30 years later, people may no longer believe in that fiction. I and mean, let's face it, the money of the dollar, as much as it's real currency because it's fiction, is down 99% since January 1st, 1900. So, so, I think in order for money to be money, one or two things, you need some intrinsic value, some intrinsic use. Look in history that cattle was money, cigars were money, cigarette butts was money, candles were money, bicycles was money, wampum was money, seashells was money, because there's jewelry, you know? A lot of things use money, Do all lot of function. Sometimes the function was strictly a jewelry function, it was pretty, sometimes it's dual function, gold is beautiful. Gold doesn't tarnish. Gold is malleable. Gold is used in electronics. Gold is ne- can never be destroyed. So gold is a classic um, um, of money because it has functional uses, jewelry uses, and you can't destroy it. Now what about the dollar? The dollar really has no function, except to pay taxes, truthfully, and to, as, as trade. But the U.S. government has a gun at your back. And if you don't use the dollar properly, we're going to shoot you. You counterfeit it, you go to jail. You, uh, you, 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 you don't, don't pay your taxes. You gotta, Come up with these dollars to pay your taxes, you go to jail. The government has created a value strictly with the strength of government. Now, I don't think that's so great. I do think one of the functions of government is to create a currency. The dollar has that. Bitcoin has no government backing and, excuse me, I must say, has no intrinsic value. It's certainly not used as a currency. If I go to my grocery store and I want to buy something with my Bitcoin, I have to fill out an IRS form and to show what I paid for my Bitcoin and pay a capital gain tax on it. If I take a dollar or three dollars and buy a, can, a bottle of Coke, I don't have to tell the store where I got my Bitcoin from, where I got my dollar from, and pay a capital gains tax Am my used to the dollar. So the dollar and gold can't be used as currencies, only a store of value. But gold is a store of value because it's intrinsic value. I buy my wife a beautiful gold necklace, a beautiful gold ring. We'll use gold as a component for a diamond ring. But it's used for computers. Computers themselves, which have a gold component, are needed to mine Bitcoins. Bitcoin itself is dependent on gold. But Bitcoin really has no intrinsic value. To be a store of value, what I understand it means, you're storing some intrinsic value. You're putting your money in Bitcoin because it represents some real value. The real value can't simply be that other people believe that, you'll be able to, that you believe you'll be able to sell to somebody else at a similar value. Now, I could be wrong about that, but that's how my fundamental bias is Bitcoin. Had I not had the fundamental bias about, about Bitcoin, and I thought Bitcoin was a true... A true currency, yeah, Bitcoin has the same kind of breakouts that other currencies has, the same kind of consolidation, the same kind of bubble tops and so on and so forth. Uh, it, it would work on cycles. So yes, Bitcoin probably is a great tool for uh, a technical trader. Probably the best tool is, is to be buying, buying breakouts after consolidation.
1: Yeah.
2: It might stop, like you do with any other, any, other, any other asset that has technical trading in it. There isn't that much in the, in the in data. There isn't that much as far as you know, data, the stock market is there's myriads of data in the stock market. And I have you know thirty, forty thousand indicators you look at. But in Bitcoin there aren't that many it's really psych- psychology and market action. Yeah. Maybe volume, maybe.
0: So, so let me ask you, um are there any are there any kind of knockout signals that you look for? Or or have we been close to any signals that you've, you you deem to be incredibly important in, in in recognizing major turning points that have your kind of head on a tilt or, or at the moment, is it pretty clear sailing and there's nothing kind of flashing amber at you that, that says we need to prepare for a turning point?
2: Okay, well, what's flashing amber to me is that we have to prepare for higher stock market. People aren't, aren't, aren't afraid of that. I mean, too many people aren't afraid of that the market's gonna go up another 50%. No, one, no one's saying they see a 50% gain from it. They're saying you they see 20%, 15%, 10%. My fear is that were in 1920s Germany, where the market was a millionth of percent. You didn't make a lot of money on a real basis, but you certainly did better than you did owning German bonds, owning any, yeah. any bonds. So, so my fear is an inflationary fear, hyperinflationary fear. That is my fear. On the other side of the coin, if the bubble proponents um, are correct, the central banks all of a sudden get religion and decide to rein in monetary base and raise interest rates, then my fear is that this is really could collapse. Now I want to make something, I'm, I'm so glad I just thought of this, this argument, I want to make sure I, I, I rarely make this argument. I think people are missing the point when they discuss about a stock market bubble. They're all missing the point. The stock market bubble is just a sign, it's a symptom of an economic bubble. The reason there could be a stock market bubble is because corporations are in a bubble. They're borrowing money they otherwise shouldn't borrow. Consumers are borrowing money they otherwise shouldn't borrow. The, the bubble isn't restricted to any one type of asset like stocks or bonds. It's a symptom, symptomatic of the fact that the whole world is in a bubble. So when you talk about an all-market bubble, they think about tradable markets. No. If there's a bubble in the tradable market, the real bubble is in the non-tradable markets. Real bubble is in the corporate balance sheets. The real bubbles in consumer balance sheets. That's where the worry is. So now I want to get back to my argument. That say, well, it's not an argument. I say overvaluation doesn't mean anything. No, it doesn't mean anything in itself. Because how do you really know it's overvalued? But as a symptom of people throwing caution to the wind, mm-hmm. it means not just throwing caution to the wind when they're buying stocks. They're throwing caution to the wind when they're taking the student loans or when they're lending money to the student loans or the car dealers or the, or the finance companies that are lending money to, to subprime auto buyers, or subprime real estate investors, or, or, or great corporations that have a, a, a huge portfolio of, of real estate highly leverage. If there's a bubble, the bubble is a bubble, an in, in all market bubble, all, all assets, not just tradable assets. And if that bubble is tricked, there's no limit how low to go. But the risk is that they don't trick this bubble that they're aware of this bubble. See, Powell might be aware of the oil market bubble. He doesn't give a damn about stocks or bonds. Powell cares about jobs in the economy. If he pricks the stock market bubble, by definition he's pricking the corporate bubble because it's really one bubble. And he's not, if he doesn't do that, his only alternative at this point is Weimar Republic 1920 to 1923. You want to be in stocks. You don't want to be in bonds. Maybe you want to be in Bitcoin and gold. You certainly don't want to hold cash waiting for the next correction.
1: Milton, you alluded earlier to the fact that um, if the bond market were to start having trouble, it would matter to the stock market at some point. I yes. mean, I'm, yeah. Yes. So, yes. My, my, given what your fear is, that, that you agree with the statement that the, the central banks seem to be trapped because. Economic activity hasn't been able to support their getting away from all this monetization. So the question is Do you have something in your indicators that would say, you know what the bond markets in trouble now? And I'll have to factor that into my economic analysis But then I also have to be aware of the fact that the central banks can't really let the bond market misbehave and that would lead to your Weimar sort of analogy I know that's a kind of a complex question. Maybe it's too far. No, it's actually a not- question
2: because if the bond market collapses because of inflation, that will not cause deflationary action. That will be, be inflationary. If they raise rates, real rates, see if, if they fight this bubble by raising real rates, by actually tightening monetary policy, then of course you prick the bubble and things collapse. But if the bond market declines because they are not pricking the bubble, then, you know, then then uh, it's, it's an inflationary movement. I want to tell you something that, which is really, people aren't talking about. Maybe it's, I've heard it from some, some economists. We know that total government debt, you know, federal, state, local, and personal debt is the highest in history. We also know that M2 money supply, rate of growth is also the highest in history. In my mind, probably the M2 money growth is there to offset the, problem, the potential problem with all the debt in the economy. However, what we see now, due to Fed Action, the Central Bank worldwide is, but they call the financial obligations ratio, which is the ability to pay down debt, pay interest on your debt, is the lowest it's been in history. In other words, although debt outstanding is high relative to assets or relative to GDP, is highest in history, the ability to pay the interest on the debt is greatest in history. You have a greater ability to pay interest in debt now than, than you've ever had. Now, This cannot be considered bearish to the economy. This cannot be considered bearish to the stocks. They cannot tell you that a bubble is about to burst. A bubble will seem to be bursting, but it's financial distress. When people are worried about paying interest, now, of course, the distress will come when they have to roll over their loans. They may be able to pay the interest for three or four or five years. When the bond expires, they have to roll it over. Who says there will still be a viable bond market to roll it over into? But that's a bet we're not going to take at this point point. say there will no bond market to roll over to, As long as the Fed maintains their uh, monetary easing, they will be able to roll over the bond. But anyway, on a, sh- on a short-term to, to mid-term basis, as bad as the debt situation is, the ability to pay this debt is probably greatest it's been in, in, our, in our living history anyway. I don't know if you can go back to, to previous uh, centuries. But is, is that like, partially
1: because of the level of rates, Milton?
2: Yeah, of course it's because yeah, level of rates. Okay. That's point Level of rates. Right. It may be false. It may be a false level of rates. And the Fed central banks are playing around with money, but they're doing a good job because they're making it easy for any time they can harry, take out an order loan at half a percent interest and not worry about you know I, when we got into the business in the late 70s, eighties, an order loan was twelve percent, thirteen percent per mm-hmm. annum. I mean, you're not talking 1%, 2%, 3%. You're not talking junk bonds in the 3% range. This has been very beneficial. It's not strictly, it's not strictly monetary base rising or M2 money supply rising. It's having a profound effect on the credit market. Of course, this might be considered bubble action, but there's no way to argue that this is negative action, certainly not for the short term. And I don't see that changing. Listen, of course, the 10-year yield has been moving up. Um, so maybe new borrowers, new borrowers at that rate will have to... Uh, a little higher interest, or, or uh, people are rolling debt currently, but if, if you look at the total bond market, maybe investors who are holding the bonds are losing money, but invest, But corporations that are paying on these bonds are still paying at the old rate, no matter what happens to their interest rate. Interest rates could double tomorrow, but my mortgage isn't going to change. Now, I got a mortgage of 3.5%, I refinanced like everyone else did mortgage rates go up to 50%, I'll still pay my 3.5% for the next 24 years. So there's not a direct immediate effect when rates go up to the economy. So you know, we have to keep things in mind. We have to keep the benefits, the benefits of low rates. It's something we cannot discount. And yeah, in my for, opinion, for
0: everybody, for, for, for everybody n- nobody less than the governments, I would imagine. But how, how, how does something like um, yield curve control affect your signals? Because obviously we've seen it in Japan. I don't know if you've studied Japan and we can see any kind of corruption to signals that yield curve control creates. Maybe you studied it or maybe you haven't. But the threat of it in the US, obviously, if you do that and you peg the curve in the bond market, it, it must send a cascade of corrupted signals through so many technical data points. How do you think about that as a potential threat or an opportunity perhaps?
2: No, I, I, I can't really give you a very intelligent. Is it an operation what we have in the past? The well, they, they, in- yeah,
0: no, they're, talk, they're talking about maybe if the 10 year keeps backing up, that they will basically peg the 10 year out and they'll stand there and they'll say, we'll buy an unlimited amount of 10 year treasuries no, the, at X yield to keep the price. Well, there. It, it, I,
2: I, I'm not an expert in this, but I would okay. say it seems to me more towards the hyperinflationary side than towards the
0: deflationary deep, deep yeah, yeah. side. No, for sure. I mean, that's, it, that's, a, it,
2: that's another. That's another fear that is not in the market. That's another yeah. fear, in a sense, of inflation that, that's not in the market, but it's being shown up in, in the technical work of the market. It's,
0: it's, it's right. I mean, I mean, I, you know, I can see how that affects the, the currency, affects dollar, affects gold. It affects I want Bitcoin. to say something
2: fascinating about Japan. You know, it's just fascinating. You know, Japan has been in a deflationary period basically since since uh, 1990, I believe. Right. Yeah.
0: yeah exactly. Right.
2: Now Japanese yen has been a very strong currency since, since that time, very strong currency relative to all our currencies. So I guess someone who held Japanese yen probably did pretty well if he's buying things out of the country. But the point I want to make is, if you bought gold at the peak in 1981, 1980, in Japanese yen it didn't break even until 2019.: Yeah. The Japanese yen was so strong relative to gold. And if you purchase gold in, in yen terms, you lost money until 2000. And now we traded back a little bit in Japanese yeah. yen terms sort of even. So talking 40 years of holding gold in your own currency and you're breaking even. I just say this to all those gold bugs who thinks that gold is a short-term investment, short, short investment, if, you, if this is a defla- real deflation like we had in Japan, there's no reason to believe that the price of gold will act well in your currency. That's yeah. what a point i would like to make. Every other currency, of course, gold is way above where it was in 1980. I mean, in the U.S., it was 800 in 1980. Now, more than double that. But, um, you know, I'm looking at Canadian dollars, British pounds, euros. But in terms of yen, basically back where you were at the 1980s. kind of fascinating to me.
1: Yeah, I was actually aware of that data. But um, I think that um, given the behavior of all the central banks on the planet, worrying about deflation, although that's been a popular theme for a long time, there's the one thing that I agree with Ben Bernanke about is they have a printing press. They're willing to use it and guess what? It works. So as long as they can run the printing press, I think all these continual fears about deflation are overblown. And if you look back, it hadn't happened. I mean, we've had asset class deflation if you want to call it bear market deflation, but other than the fact that te- technology perennially declines in price, which is why we love it, the, with the central banks doing what they're doing, I, I, unless they can blow bubbles so big that they collapse, I don't see how we can have deflation.
2: Okay, let me tell you, I, I, I've been a big deflationist, and I'm still a big deflationist. I mean, let me tell you what I mean, because Ben Bernanke, he really took it from Milton Friedman. Ben Bernanke has this helicopter drop analogy. You know, he said, if you have deflation, we'll just, you drop the trillions of dollars through a helicopter, that'll be inflationary. And I say, you know, I don't buy that theory. It depends where the helicopter picked up its dollars. Yes. If they printed the dollars, they counterfeited the dollars, of course it's deflationary. Yeah. But if they borrowed the dollars, they're going to have to pay it back. They borrowed, threw it out for free, but they stole the money. So that, the fact that they owe money offsets all the trillion dollars you put into the economy. For example, they're borrowing $1.9 trillion the Biden administration to put into the economy. But the, bar, the Treasury is borrowing it. Unless that is monetized, it can't be inflationary, there's an offset. So I actually think that central bank action over the long term is deflationary if they're honest central banks. I am thinking, what I've been reading, <laughs> so oh, so wait, wait, wait,
1: we already know they're not, uh, I mean. that's it. Uh, I never, I, you know,
2: I'm a very simple guy. I always trusted people. I trusted these guys <laughs> to be honest. But now that I'm starting to think maybe these guys aren't honest. Maybe they no. will actually eventually print. And then, of course, you're right that it's, they're very, very inflationary. That's exactly the dilemma. The markets are telling us, at least the equity markets are telling us inflation. The bond markets weren't telling us inflation until now. When we start to see interest rates start to move up. The gold market—it's it's, it's hard to say. But listen, this is this is a dilemma. Again, is, is, we mm. didn't forty years ago, as I say, Stanley Burge said, the next—we don't know how it's going to end. Will be inflation or deflation? We still don't know how it's going to end, and we're. We're sitting here trying to place our bets at the right time and the
0: right direction. Well, that, that 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 that's the perfect way to wrap it up, Milton, because that's exactly what this podcast is all about. And you know, Bill and I went into this knowing that we don't know what the end game is, and we're just trying to get as many perspectives on that as we can. And so, you know, our thanks go to you for for offering us yours, which is different to every other perspective we've had, but equally useful, I think, for the people listening to kind of help guide them through this period and and try to figure out what it means for everybody's individual portfolios, which at the end of the day is what we're all trying to do. So, so thanks for taking all this time to to sit and chat.
2: Thank you. I really really appreciate this interview and a, a nice intellectual conversation. Mostly I spend my time in front of the computer, writing, researching, writing, researching, writing, not so much back and forth communication. I read a lot. But this is very helpful to me as well. I really thank you guys. Thank you. Well, Steve. thank
0: you. And I I'll, and I'll make sure that we uh we let everybody know how they can find out more about about you and about your service and where they can where they can follow you and, and reach out and find out more about your service because I you think so as, as Bill's you. proven it's uh it's an invaluable one. Yeah. It's really great. Thank
2: you, Bill.
0: Well, Bill, I have to say uh I, I said to you at the top of the show how fascinating I find Milton's work and it really does it, it just sets so many things off in my head of stuff I have to either investigate more or think about more and and it, it's happened again with this conversation
1: yes um it's he, he's a remarkable uh, man in that um it's not very often you find somebody who can talk in great depth about fundamentals and technical and then not let the two kind of get in each other's yeah. way uh, i think that's very impressive
0: yeah i, I mean I, I don't know how he does that i mean he, he explained it to us in there but for me i don't know that i could i could kind of issue fundamental signals in favor of technical signals. i totally get why that makes sense uh, but it's a mindset for me you know it's 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 i guess it's the curse of being a value investor that you that momentum and technicals are an input but they're not the ultimate decider of what you do and when you do it Well,
1: he also made a very good point, I think, about uh, valuations. Um, As somebody who's watched things evolve for the last 40 years, what I've come to realize more and more is um, how little valuation really matters, except in the potential measurement of either how much it may go up or how much it could fall. But in terms of any sort of timing reality, it, it it, it doesn't help. And of course, now... We're in this era where um, uh, value is perceived as what's a, a, a hot discussion candidate on social media, yeah. based on the the new ETF that uh, Dave Portnoy is launching, ironically Buzz, as, yeah. We, yeah. as we as we um, tape this interview. So, yeah. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, obviously, I think valuation is a good way to gauge risk and reward, but beyond that, it's it's hard to make it. Uh, useful in a, in a, any sort of a timing sense at all.
0: Yeah. I, 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 you know, I just have this feeling that the the time and the cycle when valuation doesn't matter normally immediately precedes the period where it really, really matters. You know what I mean? And, and so Mm -hmm. when I look at valuations and you're right at the moment, they don't matter. And, and I've, I've been talking to some friends in various parts of the world this week about SPACs and some of the stories I'm hearing about specs and where bids have come in at just ludicrous uh you know pe- people jumping hundreds of millions of dollars over the last bid you know there, there is there's there seems to be no prudence in in some of these valuation measures it's a case of i want to get this done and the price i pay just doesn't matter because ultimately i'm going to make money out of it somehow and that that's a that's a, another alarm bell to me that we're at that point where Valuations matter so little that they're, they're, they're fairly soon going to matter an awful lot.
1: Well, I think the distinction um, was um, sort of made by, by Milton in that in what I call the, the activist central bank era, these bubbles are perpetuated because the feds or the central banks are so afraid of the underlying economic conditions that they, and, and that they're trapped um so uh, what I what, what I what I think is we can be in this massive bubble, but that that doesn't mean that it's ready to burst um, because the, the valuation mattered before we got into the activist central bank era. Before green spend, valuations did matter, maybe not as a perfect timing tool, but they did matter. Yeah, there yeah. was some constraint. And now that we're in the in the in, in the QE0 interest rate era, valuations don't mean anything. And so I think while I agree with you and my hair would be on fire about all of these things, but for the fact that we're in this era where the central banks are actually aiding and abetting all of this. So my belief is the bubble has to get so big that it is, it can collapse even with the monetization. Yeah, yeah. And point. I don't know how big that is. So I try not to let these crazy, what we would deem to be crazy things. You know things like what you just talked about if, impact, affect my thinking because I feel like I've sort of seen this movie. And while I agree it's in completely insane, and at some point it'll lead to tr- trouble, it, it's not any time now. So it's uh, for me, it's not actionable. So I, yeah, I'm, no, no, I, I,
0: to- I, I, I agree. It's definitely not actionable. It's just one more kind of road sign on the way to some destination. And, and again, I of- let you
1: know. Yeah. I was, it's kind of about how much risk is out there. Right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. those those are all risky strategies, but whether anyone's going to pay the piper anytime soon, we don't know that.
0: Well, and it's interesting because the benchmark that people I keep here is 2000, right? That the most extreme period. I so well, it's <laughs> compared to 2000, it's only slightly overvalued, you know. It, it, but you take 2000 out and but that's the place people go back to.
1: Well, and also the the sort of the 2000-ness was narrow
0: by today's standards
1: and market cap. So in some ways, I mean, uh, I've said this before. I think I might have mentioned it uh, in one of the last couple of things we've done. To me, this has all the hallmarks of 29, 69, which which Milton talked about, Um, 99, 89 in Tokyo, uh, you know and and even the 07 bubble in some yeah. ways in terms of people's belief that housing prices could only go up so you've gotten all the behavior i i, I feel like it's i feel like give, given all the books i've read on the 20s we're replaying 19 the late 20s in some in some way already but that that doesn't mean that it's is it 26 27 28 sure. or 20 sure. i mean i don't know
0: well look i guess, I guess we'll find out once stocks reach a permanently high plateau at least then we'll at least yeah, then we'll know. Yeah. Then we'll know. <laughs> all right, well listen, it's um it's, it's been another fantastic conversation. Um for those of you listening that uh, want to find out more about Milton's work and I would strongly urge you to do so. You'll find out um all you need to know at his website which is miltonberg.com. Berg is spelled b e r g. Um and if you want to get some samples of Milton's work, then uh, contact uh, uh, is an email you can send uh, with a request for that to Jennifer at BlueFoxAdvisors.com. And Jen is uh, Milton's um, marketing affiliate, and she's just a wonderful, wonderful lady. So send Jen an email. um, Follow Milton at his website, uh, MiltonBerg.com. You can follow me on Twitter. If you're not doing so already, you'll find me at T-T-M-Y-G-H. And I'm at FleckCap.com. And he's at FleckCap. No, 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 no. no, (laughs) I'm at Fleck, sorry. Yeah, you're right. Jesus. I forgot where I was. It's the... Yeah, we'll do this a few more times, Bill. You got the hang of it. Okay. I'll, I'll try to remember my name. At FleckCap and at FleckensteinCapital.com for the website. There we go. Okay. Thank you. I'll let you, do, I'll let you do me from now on. Mate, I'm, I'm happy to be your, your representative. Mate, it's been fun as always. Um, let's do it again soon. Okay. It's a deal. Take care. Bye bye.